This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Welcome to the I Can't Sleep podcast with Benjamin Boster. If you're tired of sleepless nights, you'll love the I Can't Sleep podcast I help quiet your mind by reading random articles from across the web to bore you to sleep with my soothing voice. Each episode provides enough interesting content to hold your attention, and then your mind lets you drift off. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's I Can't Sleep with Benjamin Boster. My name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading... I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Sophie Clark, Leslie H., Maria Ben, Tanya, and Cassandra Towson. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of Making the Sleepy Podcast. And for anyone who doesn't know, all these names that I just read are brand new patrons of Sleepy on patreon.com uh, which is a site where you can go on and support creators of the work that you like so 
If the Sleepy Podcast has maybe helped you get a better night's sleep, consider going to patreon.com slash sleepy radio and donating even a dollar a month. It goes a really long way. And at $5 a month, there's cool perks like you get access to a special exclusive Patreon poetry feed where I send you extra poetry readings every month. And also with $5 a month, you are automatically entered into all of our book raffles moving forward where we give away the copies of the books that uh, I read on the show. So again, if you'd like to be a patron and have your name read in the opening credits of the next show after you donate, just go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music that you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kana. Tonight, I am going to be reading from one of my absolute favorite authors. And if you've been listening to the show for a while, you will know that this is one of my favorite authors. And if you've been listening to the show for a while, maybe it's one of yours too. Because the way that he writes, it's like it was written to be said out loud by a bedside. It's just beautiful beautiful writing um, and that is Nathaniel Hawthorne I have this wonderful book of Nathaniel Hawthorne's tales that I read through from time to time and uh, I was perusing through the story he has called Feathertop I love the title it's a wonderful meandering story about a witch and a scarecrow that she makes and do a real person it's a great story and I hope that while I read it you can doze off into a deep deep slumber so now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it feel yourself melt into your bed get real comfortable Close your eyes and let me read to you. Feathertop, a moralized legend. Dickon, cried Mother Rigby, a call for my pipe. The pipe was in the old dame's mouth when she said these words. She had thrust it there after filling it with tobacco, but without stooping to light it at the hearth where, indeed, there was no appearance of a fire having been kindled that morning. Forthwith, however, as soon as the order was given, There was an intense red glow out of the bowl of the pipe and a whiff of smoke from Mother Rigby's lips. Whence the coal came, and how brought thither by an invisible hand, I have never been able to discover. Good, quoth Mother Rigby, with a nod of her head. Thank ye, Dickon. And now for making this scarecrow. Be within call, Dickon, in case I need you again. The good woman had risen thus early, for as yet it was scarcely sunrise in order to set about making a scarecrow, which she intended to put in the middle of her corn patch. It was now the latter week of May, and the crows and blackbirds had already discovered the little green rolled-up leaf of the Indian corn just peeping out of the soil. She was determined, therefore, to contrive as lifelike a scarecrow as ever seen, and to finish it immediately, from top to toe, so that it should begin its sentinel's duty that very morning. Now Mother Rigby, 
as everybody must have heard, was one of the most cunning and potent witches in New England, and might, with very little trouble, have made a scarecrow ugly enough to frighten the minister himself. But on this occasion, as she had awakened in an uncommonly pleasant humor, and was further dulcified by her pipe of tobacco, she resolved to produce something fine, beautiful, and splendid, rather than hideous and horrible. I don't want to set up a hobgoblin in my own corn batch and almost at my own doorstep, said Mother Rigby to herself, puffing out a whiff of smoke. I could do it if I pleased, but I'm tired of doing marvelous things, and so I'll keep within the bounds of everyday business just for variety's sake. Besides, there's no use in scaring these little children for a mile roundabout, though tis true I am a witch. It was settled, therefore, in her own mind that the scarecrow should represent a fine gentleman of the period, so far as the materials at hand would allow. Perhaps it may be as well to enumerate the chief of the articles that went to the composition of this figure. The most important item of all, probably, although it made so little show, was a certain broomstick on which Mother Rigby had taken many an airy gallop at midnight, and which now served the scarecrow by way of a spinal column, or, as the unlearned phrase it, a backbone. One of its arms was a disabled flail, which used to be wielded by Goodman Rigby, before his spouse worried him out of his troublesome world. The other, if I mistake not, was composed of the pudding stick, and a broken rung of a chair tied loosely together at the elbow. As for its legs, the right was a hoe handle, and the left an undistinguished and miscellaneous stick from the woodpile. Its lungs, stomach, and other affairs of that kind were nothing better than a meal bag stuffed with straw. Thus we have made out the skeleton an entire corporosity of the scarecrow, with the exception of its head, and this was admirably supplied by a somewhat withered and shriveled pumpkin in which Mother Rigby cut two holes for the eyes and a slit for the mouth, leaving a bluish-colored knob in the middle to pass for a nose. It was really quite a respectable face. I've seen worse ones on human shoulders, at any rate, said Mother Rigby, and many a fine gentleman has a pumpkin head, as well as my scarecrow. But the clothes, in this case, were to be the making of the man. So the good old woman took down from a peg an ancient plum-colored coat of London make, and with relics of embroidery at its seams, cuffs, pocket flaps, tattered at the skirts, and threadbare all over. On the left breast was a round hole, whence either a star of nobility had been rent away, or else the hot heart of some former wearer had scorched it through and through. The neighbors said that this rich garment belonged to the black man's wardrobe, and that he kept it at Mother Rigby's cottage for the convenience of slipping it on whenever he wished to make a grand appearance at the governor's table. To match the coat, there was a velvet waistcoat of very ample size and formerly embroidered with foliage that had been as brightly golden as the maple leaves in October, but which had now quite vanished out of the substance of velvet. Next came a pair of scarlet breeches, once worn by the French governor of Louisbourg, and these of which had touched the lower step of the throne of Louis the Grand. The Frenchman had given these small clothes to an Indian powwow, who parted with them 
to the old witch for a gill of strong waters at one of their dances in the forest. Furthermore, Mother Rigby produced a pair of silk stockings and put them on the figure's legs, where they showed as unsubstantial as a dream, with the wooden reality of the two sticks making itself miserably apparent through the holes. Lastly, she put her dead husband's wig on the bare scalp of the pumpkin and surmounted the hole with a rusty three-cornered hat in which was stuck the longest tail feather of a rooster. Then the old dame stood the figure up in a corner of her cottage and chuckled to behold its yellow semblance of a visage with its knobbly little nose thrust into the air. It had a strangely self-satisfied aspect and seemed to say, Come, look at me. And you are well worth looking at. That's a fact, quoth Mother Rigby, in admiration at her own handiwork. I have made many a puppet since I've been a witch, but methinks this is the finest of them all. It is almost too good to be a scarecrow. And by and by, I'll just fill a fresh pipe of tobacco and then take him out to the corn patch. While filling her pipe, the old woman continued to gaze with almost a motherly affection at the figure in the corner. To say the truth, whether it were chance or skill or downright witchcraft, there was something wonderfully human in this ridiculous shape, bedizened with its tattered finery. And as for the countenance, it appeared to shrivel its yellow surface into a grin, a funny kind of expression betwixt scorn and merriment, as if it understood itself to be a jest at mankind. The more Mother Rigby looked, the better she was pleased. Dickon, cried she, sharply, another coal for my pipe. Hardly had she spoken then, just as before, there was a red glowing coal on top of the tobacco. She drew in a long whiff and puffed it forth again into the bar of morning sunshine which struggled through the dusty pane of her cottage window. Mother Rigby always liked to flavor her pipe with a coal of fire from the particular chimney corner whence this had been brought. But where that chimney corner might be, or who brought the coal from it, further than that the invisible messenger seemed to respond to the name of Dickon, I cannot tell. That puppet yonder, thought Mother Rigby, still with her eyes fixed on the scarecrow, is too good a piece of work to stand all summer in a corn patch, frightening away the crows and blackbirds. He's capable of better things. Why, I've danced with the worst one, when partners happen to be scarce at our witch meetings in the forest. What if I should let him take this chance? among the other men of straw and empty fellows who go bustling about the world. The old witch took three or four more whiffs of her pipe and smiled. He'll meet plenty of his brethren at every street corner, continued she. Well, I didn't mean to dabble in witchcraft today further than the lighting of my pipe, but a witch I am, and a witch I'm likely to be and there's no use trying to shirk it. I'll make a man of my scarecrow, word only for the joke's sake. While muttering these words, Mother Rigby took the pipe from her own mouth and thrust it into the crevice which represented the same feature in the pumpkin visage of the scarecrow. Puff, darling, puff, said she. Puff away, my fine fellow. Your life depends on it. This was a strange exhortation, undoubtedly, to be addressed to a mere thing of sticks, straw, and old clothes, 
with nothing better than a shriveled pumpkin for a head, as we know to have been the Scarecrow's case. Nevertheless, as we must carefully hold in remembrance, Mother Rigby was a witch of singular power and dexterity, and keeping this fact duly before our minds, we shall see nothing beyond credibility in the remarkable incidents of our story. Indeed, the great difficulty will be at once got over, if we can only bring ourselves to believe that, as soon as the old dame bade him puff, there came a whiff of smoke from the scarecrow's mouth. It was the very feeblest of whiffs, to be sure, but it was followed by another and another, each more decided than the preceding one. Puff away, my pet. Puff away, pretty one. Mother Rigby kept repeating with her pleasantest smile. It is the breath of life to ye, and that you may take my word for. Beyond all question, the pipe was bewitched. There must have been a spell, either in the tobacco or in the fiercely glowing coal that so mysteriously burned on top of it, or in the pungently aromatic smoke which exhaled from the kindled weed. The figure, after a few doubtful attempts, at length blew forth a volley of smoke extending all the way from the obscure corner into the bar of sunshine. There, it eddied and melted away among the motes of dust. It seemed a convulsive effort, for the two or three next widths were fainter, although the coal still glowed and threw a gleam over the scarecrow's visage. The old witch clapped her skinny palms together and smiled encouragingly upon her handiwork. She saw that the charm worked well. The shriveled yellow face, which heretofore had been no face at all, had already a thin fantastic haze, as it were, of human likeness, shifting to and fro across it, sometimes vanishing entirely, but growing more perceptible than ever with the next whiff on the pipe. The whole figure, in like manner, assumed a show of life, such as we impact to ill-defined shapes among the clouds and half-deceive ourselves with the pastime of our own fancy. If we must needs pry closely into the matter, it may be doubted whether there was any real change after all in the sordid, worn-out, worthless, and ill-joined substance of the scarecrow, but merely a spectral illusion and a cunning effect of light and shade, so colored and contrived as to delude the eyes of most men. The miracles of witchcraft seem always to have had a very shallow subtlety, and at least if the above explanation did not hit the truth of the process, I can suggest no better. Well puffed, my pretty lad, still cried old Mother Rigby. Come, another good stout whiff, and let it be with might and main. Puff for thy life, I tell thee, puff out of the very bottom of thy heart, if any heart thou hast or any bottom to it. Well done again. Thou didst suck in a mouthful, as if for the pure love of it. And then the witch beckoned to the scarecrow, throwing so much magnetic potency into her gesture that it seemed as if it must inevitably be obeyed, like the mystic call of the lodestone when it summons the iron. Why lurkest thou in the corner, lazy one, said she. Step forth, thou hast the world before thee. Upon my word, if the legend were not one which I heard on my grandfather's knee, and which had established its place among things credible 
before my childish judgment could analyze its probability. I question whether I should have the face to tell it now. In obedience to Mother Rigby's word, and extending its arm as if to reach her outstretched hand, the figure made a step forward, a kind of hitch and jerk, however, rather than a step, then tottered and almost lost its balance. What could the witch expect? It was nothing, after all, but a scarecrow stuck upon two sticks. But the strong-willed old beldam scowled and beckoned and flung the energy of her purpose so forcefully at this poor combination of rotten wood and musty straw and ragged garments that it was compelled to show itself a man in spite of the reality of things. So it stepped into the bar of sunshine. There it stood, poor devil of a contrivance that it was, with only the thinnest vesture of human similitude about it, though, which was evident the stiff, rickety, incongruous, faded, tattered, good-for-nothing patchwork of its substance, ready to sink in a heap upon the floor, as conscious of its own unworthiness to be erect. Shall I confess the truth? At its present point of vivification, the scarecrow reminds me of some of the lukewarm and abortive characters composed of heterogeneous materials used for the thousandth time and never worth using with which romance writers and myself, no doubt, among the rest, have so overpeopled the world of fiction. But the fierce old hag began to get angry and show a glimpse of her diabolic nature, like a snake's head peeping with a hiss out of her bosom at this pusillanimous behavior of the thing which she had taken the trouble to put together. Puff away, wretch, cried she wrathfully. Puff, puff, puff. Thou thing of straw and emptiness. Thou rag or two, thou meal bag, thou pumpkin head, thou nothing. Where shall I find a name vile enough to call thee by? Puff, I say, and suck in thy fantastic life along with the smoke, else I snatch the pipe from thy mouth and hurl thee where that red coal came from. Thus threatened. The unhappy scarecrow had nothing for it but to puff away for dear life. As need was, therefore, it applied itself lustily to the pipe and sent forth such abundant volleys of tobacco smoke that the small cottage kitchen became all vaporous. The one sunbeam struggled mistily, though, and could but imperfectly define the image of the cracked and dusty window pane of the opposite wall. Mother Rigby, meanwhile, with one brown arm akimbo at either side stretched toward the figure, loomed grimly amid the obscurity with such poor an expression as when she was wont to heave a ponderous nightmare on her victim and stand at the bedside to enjoy their agony. In fear of trembling, did this poor scarecrow puff. But its efforts, it must be acknowledged, served an excellent purpose. For, with each successive whip, the figure lost more and more of its dizzy and perplexing tenuity, and seemed to take denser substance. Its very garments, moreover, partook of the magical change and shone with the gloss of novelty, and glistened with this skillfully embroidered gold that had long ago been rent away. And half revealed among the smoke, a yellow visage bent its lusterless eyes on Mother Rigby. Alas, 
the old witch clenched her fist and shook it at the figure. Not that she was positively angry, but merely acting on principle. Perhaps untrue, or not only the truth, though as high a one as Mother Rigby could be expected to attain that feeble and torpid natures, being incapable of better inspiration, must be stirred up by fear. But here was a crisis. Should she fail in what she now sought to effect, it was her ruthless purpose to scatter the miserable simulacre into its original elements. Thou hast a man's aspect, she said sternly, have also the echo and mockery of a voice. I bid thee speak. The scarecrow gasped, struggled, and at length emitted a murmur, which was so incorporated with its smoky breath that you could scarcely tell whether it were indeed a voice or only a whiff of tobacco. Some narrators of this legend hold the opinion that Mother Rigby's conjurations and the fierceness of her will had compelled a familiar spirit into the figure and that the voice was his. Mother, mumbled the poor, stifled voice, be not so awful with me. I would fain speak, but being without wits, what can I say? Thou canst speak, darling, canst thou? cried Mother Rigby, relaxing her grim countenance into a smile. And what shalt thou say? Quatha, say indeed. Art thou of the brotherhood of the empty skull, and demandest of me what thou shalt say? Thou shalt say a thousand things, and saying them a thousand times over, thou shalt still have said nothing. Be not afraid, I tell thee, when thou comest into the world, whither I purpose sending thee forthwith, thou shalt not lack the wherewithal to talk. Talk. Why, thou shalt babble like a mill stream, if thou will. Thou hast brains enough for them, I trow. At your service, mother, responded the figure. And that was well said, my pretty one, answered Mother Rigby. Then thou spakest like thyself, and meant nothing. Thou shalt have a hundred such set phrases, and five hundred to the boot of them. And now, darling, I have taken so much pains with thee, and thou art so beautiful, that by my troth I love thee better than any witch's puppet in the world and I have made them of all sorts, clay, wax, straw, sticks, night fog, morning mist, sea foam, and chimney smoke. But thou art the very best, so give heed to what I say. Yes, kind mother, said the figure, with all my heart. With all thy heart, cried the old witch, setting her hands to her sides and laughing loudly. Thou hast such a pretty way of speaking, with all thy heart, and thou didst put thy hand to the left side of thy waistcoat, as if thou really hadst one. So now, in high good humor with this fantastic contrivance of hers, Mother Rigby told the scarecrow that it must go and play its part in the great world. For not one man in a hundred, she affirmed, was gifted with more real substance than itself. And, that he might hold up his head with the best of them, she endowed him on the spot with an unreckonable amount of wealth. It consisted partly of a gold mine in El Dorado, and of ten thousand shares in a broken bubble, and of a half million acres of vineyard at the North Pole and of a castle in the air, and a chateau in Spain, together with all the rents and income therefrom accruing. She further made over to him the cargo of a certain ship, 
laden with salt of Cadiz, which she herself, by her necromantic arts, had caused to founder ten years before in the deepest of mid-ocean. If the salt were not dissolved and could be brought to market, it would fetch a pretty penny among the fishermen. That he might not lack ready money, she gave him a copper farthing of Birmingham manufacture, being all the coin she had about her, and likewise a great deal of brass, which she applied to his forehead, thus making it yellower than ever. With that brass alone, quoth Mother Rigby, thou canst pay thy way all over the earth. Kiss me, pretty darling, I have done my best for thee. Furthermore, that the adventurer might lack no possible advantage towards a fair start in life, this excellent old dame gave him a token, by which he was to introduce himself to a certain magistrate, member of the council, merchant, and elder of the church, the four capacities constituting but one man, who stood at the head of society in the neighboring metropolis. The token was neither more nor less than a single word which Mother Rigby whispered to the scarecrow and which the scarecrow was to whisper to the merchant. Gowdy, as the old fellow is, he'll run thy errands for thee. When once thou hast given him that word in his ear, said the old witch. Mother Rigby knows the worshipful justice Gookin and the worshipful justice knows Mother Rigby. Here the witch thrust her wrinkled face close to the puppets, chuckling irrepressibly and fidgeting all through her system with delight at the idea which she meant to communicate. The worshipful master Gukin, whispered she, hath a comely maiden to his daughter, and hark ye, my pet, thou hast a fair outside, and a pretty wit enough of thine own. Yea, a pretty wit enough. Thou wilt think better of it when thou hast seen more of other people's wits. Now with thy outside and thy inside, thou art the very man to win a young girl's heart. Never doubt it. I tell thee it shall be so. Put but a bold face on the matter. Sigh, smile, flourish thy hat. Thrust forth thy leg like a dancing master. Put thy right hand to the left side of thy waistcoat. And pretty Polly Gookin is thine own. All this while, the new creature had been sucking in and exhaling the vapory fragrance of his pipe and seemed now to continue this occupation as much for the enjoyment which it afforded as because it was an essential condition of its existence. It was wonderful to see how exceedingly like a human being that it behaved. Its eyes, for it appeared to possess a pair, were bent on Mother Rigby, and at suitable junctures it nodded or shook its head. Neither did it lack words proper of the occasion. Really, indeed, pray tell me, is it possible? Upon my word, by no means. Oh, ah, M. And other such weighty utterances as imply attention, inquiry, acquiescence, or dissent on the part of the auditor. Even had you stood by and seen the scarecrow made, it could scarcely have resisted the conviction that it perfectly understood the cunning counsels which the old witch poured into its counterfeit of an ear. The more earnestly it applied its lips to the pipe, the more distinctly was its human likeness stamped among visible realities. The more sagacious grew its expression, the more lifelike its gestures and movements, and the more intelligibly audible its voice. 
Its garments, too, glistened so much the brighter with an illusory magnificence. The very pipe in which burned the spell of all this wonderwork ceased to appear as a smoke-blackened earthen stump and became meerschaum with a painted bowl and amber mouthpiece. It might be apprehended, however, that as the life of the illusion seemed identical with the vapor of the pipe, it would terminate simultaneously with the reduction of the tobacco to ashes. But the beldam foresaw the difficulty. Hold thou the pipe, my precious one, while I fill it for thee again. It was sorrowful to behold how the fine gentleman began to fade back into a scarecrow, while Mother Rigby shook the ashes out of the pipe and proceeded to replenish it from her tobacco box. Dickon, cried she, in her high, sharp tone, another coal for this pipe. No sooner said than the intensely red speck of fire was glowing within the pipe bowl, and the scarecrow, without waiting for the witch's bidding, applied the two to its lip and drew in a few short, convulsive whiffs, which soon, however, became regular and equable. Now, mine own heart's darling, quoth Mother Rigby, whatever may happen to thee, thou must stick to thy pipe. Thy life is in it, and that, at least, thou knowest well, if thou knowest not besides. Stick to thy pipe, I say. Smoke, puff, blow that cloud, and tell the people, if any question be made, that is for thy health and that so the physician orders thee to do so. And, sweet one, when thou shalt find the pipe getting low, go apart into some corner, and first filling thyself with smoke, cry sharply, Dickon, a fresh pipe of tobacco, and Dickon, another coal for my pipe, and have it into thy pretty mouth, as speedily as may be, Else, instead of a gallant gentleman in a gold-laced coat, thou wilt be but a jumble of sticks, and tattered clothes, and a bag of straw, and a withered pumpkin. Now depart, my treasure, and good luck go with thee. Never fear, mother, said the figure, in a stout voice, and sending forth the congruous whiff of smoke. I will thrive if an honest man and a gentleman may. Oh, thou wilt be the death of me, cried the old witch, convulsed with laughter. That was well said. If an honest man and a gentleman may, thou playest thy part to perfection. Get along with thee, for a smart fellow, and I will wager on thy head, as a man of pith and substance, with a brain, and what they call a heart, and all else that a man should have against any other thing on two legs. I hold myself a better witch than yesterday, for thy sake. Did I not make thee? And I defy any witch in New England to make such another. Here, take my staff along with thee. The staff though it was but a plain oaken stick, immediately took the aspect of a gold-headed cane. That gold head has as much sense in it as thine own, said Mother Rigby, and it will guide thee straight to worshipful Master Gookin's door. Get thee gone, my pretty pet, my darling, my precious one, my treasure, and if any ask thy name, it is Feathertop, for thou hast a feather in thy hand, and I have thrust a handful of feathers into the hollow of thy head, and thy wig, too, is of the fashion they call Feathertop. So be Feathertop thy name. 
and issuing from the cottage, Feathertop strode manfully towards town. Mother Rigby stood at the threshold, well pleased to see how the sunbeams glistened on him, as if all his magnificence were real, and how diligently and lovingly he smoked his pipe, and how handsomely he walked, in spite of a little stiffness in his legs. She watched him until out of sight, and threw a witch benediction after her darling, and a turn of the road snatched him from her view. Betimes in the forenoon, when the principal street of the neighboring town was just at its acme of life and bustle, a stranger, a very distinguished figure, was seen on the sidewalk. His poor, as well as his high garments, betokened nothing short of nobility. He wore a richly embroidered plum-colored coat, a waistcoat of costly velvet, magnificently adorned with golden foliage, a pair of splendid scarlet breeches, and the finest and glossiest of white silk stockings. His head was covered in a parquet, so daintily powdered and adjusted that it would have been sacrilege to disorder it with a hat which therefore, and it was a gold-laced hat, set off with a snowy feather he carried beneath his arm. On the breast of his coat glistened a star. He managed his gold-headed cane with an airy grace, peculiar to the fine gentleman of the period, and to give the highest possible finish to his equipment, he had lace ruffles at his wrists, of a most ethereal delicacy, sufficiently avouching how idle and aristocratic must be the hands which they have concealed. It was a remarkable point in the accoutrement of this brilliant personage that he held in his hand a fantastic kind of pipe with an exquisitely painted bowl and an amber mouthpiece. This he applied to his lips, as often as every five or six paces, and inhaled a deep whiff of smoke, which after being retained a moment in his lungs, might be seen to eddy gracefully from his mouth to nostrils. As may well be supposed, the street was all astir to find out the stranger's name. It is some great nobleman, beyond question, said one of the townspeople, do you see the star at his breast? Nay, it is too bright to be seen, said another. Yes, he must needs be a nobleman, as you say. But by what conveyance, think you, can his lordship have voyaged or traveled thither? There has been no vessel from the old country for a month past, and if he has arrived overland from the southward, pray where his attendants and equipage. He needs no equipage to set off his rank, remarked a third. If he came among us in rags, nobility would shine through a hole in his elbow. I never saw such dignity of aspect. He has the old Norman blood in his veins, I warned him. I'd rather take him to be a Dutchman or one of your high Germans, said another citizen. The men of those countries have always the pipe at their mouths. And so has a Turk, answered his companion. But in my judgment, this stranger hath been bred at the French corps, and hath there learned politeness and a grace of manner which none understand so well as the nobility of France. That gate now, a vulgar spectator, might deem it stiff, he might call it a hitch and jerk, but to my eye it hath an unspeakable majesty and must have been acquired by constant observation of the department of the Grand Monarch. The stranger's character and office are evident, though. He is a French ambassador, come to treat with our rulers about the cession of Canada. More probably a Spaniard, said another, 
and hence his yellow complexion. Or most likely, he is from the Havana, or from some port on the Spanish main, and comes to make investigation about the piracies in which our governor is thought to connive at. Those settlers in Peru and Mexico have skins as yellow as the gold which they dig out of their mines. Yellow or not, cried a lady, he is a beautiful man. So tall, so slender, such a fine, noble face, with so well-shaped a nose, and all that delicacy of expression about the mouth. And bless me, how bright his star is. It positively shoots out flames. So do your eyes, fair lady, said the stranger, with a bow and a flourish of his pipe, for he was just passing at the instant. Upon my honor, they have quite dazzled me. Was ever so original and exquisite a compliment, murmured the lady, in an ecstasy of delight. Amid the general admiration, excited by the stranger's appearance, there were only two dissenting voices. One was that of an impertinent cur, which after snuffing at the heels of this glistening figure, put its tail between its legs and skulked into its master's backyard, vociferating an execrable howl. The other dissentient was a young child, who squalled at the fullest stretch of his lungs and babbled some unintelligible nonsense about a pumpkin. Feathertop, meanwhile, pursued his way along the street, except for the few complimentary words to the lady, and now and then a slight inclination of the head and requital of the profound reverences of the bystanders. He seemed wholly absorbed in his pipe. There needed no other proof of his rank in consequence than the perfect equanimity with which he comported himself while the curiosity and admiration of the town swelled almost into clamor around him. With the crowd still gathering behind his footsteps, he finally reached the mansion house of the worshipful Justice Gookin, entered the gate, ascended the steps of the front door, and knocked. In the interim, before his summons was answered, the stranger observed to shake the ashes out of his pipe. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.